were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will... And trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Please pray with me. Father, we come now to hear from you. And ask that you would speak to us from your word. That we may know you and your ways. That we may trust you and love you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the year 202... A.D., the emperor Severus issued an edict making conversion to Christianity illegal, punishable by death. Perpetua, a 22-year-old noblewoman and mother of an infant son, along with her servant girl Felicity, who herself was eight months pregnant, defied the order and both bowed their knee to King Jesus. They were quickly arrested along with a number of brothers who also worshipped Jesus and they are confined to prison to await the day of their execution. Perpetua nursed her child in prison and made arrangements for her mother to raise him once her day of execution were to come. In fact, when her father learned that she was to be thrown to the wild beasts in the arena, he tried everything he could to get her free. But she would not recant her faith in Jesus. On the day of the execution, the men were taken first because in this day women and men would not be executed together. On his way out, Satyrus, who was the Bible teacher, the leader of this group, had one last word with a man named Pudens, a prison guard. And then he was sent out, along with his brothers, to face a bear, a leopard, and a wild boar. Satyrus was almost immediately killed by the leopard. In fact, as the spectators watched his execution, They commented on the amount of blood that was being spilled from his body, shouting in mockery, he is well baptized. Afterwards, Perpetua and Felicity were stripped to their undergarments and set into the arena to face a mad cow. One spectator said they entered the amphitheater singing joyfully as though they were on their way to heaven. The mad cow was not as proficient as killing as the leopard was and only was successful in harming and injuring these two women. In fact, the sight of these women being tortured by this cow soon became too much for the spectators, and they began to cry out, Enough! Enough! And so the women were taken to a gladiator 
Perpetua asked before she was struck down if she could retire her hair, for loose hair was a sign of mourning and sadness in that day. She then called out to her, the grieving spectators, her grieving friends who watched this, saying, Give out the word to the brothers and sisters. Stand fast in the faith. Love one another. And don't let our suffering become a stumbling block to you. The first blow of the gladiator was not sufficient. He was young and inexperienced. After Perpetua cried out in pain, she regathered herself and took his hand and directed the sword to her throat where he finished his job. On March 7th, 203 AD, our sisters Perpetua and Felicity received the full glory of their salvation. On January 19th, 1981, a group of terrorists broke into the SIL residence in Bogota, Colombia, kidnapping Wycliffe translator Chet Betterman. The communique from the terrorists read, Chet Bitterman will be executed unless the Summer Institute of Linguistics and all its members leave Columbia by 6 p.m. February 19th. Wycliffe did not budge. Ch Brenda Bitterman and her two little children waited for 48 days. It was on March 7th. In 1981, the terrorists shot Chet Bitterman through the heart and left his body on a bus in Bogota. More than 100 Wycliffe translators who were serving in Columbia at this time were all given the choice of a new field. Not one took it. In fact, almost immediately they had 200 applicants to continue Chet Bitterman's Bible translating work. Would you die for Jesus? Would you endure the suffering and the pain to die for Christ? Would you have the strength to do so? Of course, this is somewhat of a hypothetical question for us, but it is not for over 400 million Christians who really have to answer that question every day. For 75% of the world's population lives in countries which are hostile to Christianity. So I wonder, would you die for him? Or would you be tempted, perhaps like me, to rationalize a denial, saying, God, I'm going to deny you with my mouth, but I don't mean it in my heart. Or I'm going to deny you, Gord, in order that I can spend my life serving you. I just want to serve you, so I'm going to deny you. Or, or my children need a father, or my wife needs a husband, and I'll raise them to love you and know you. So yes, God, I'm going to deny you, but I'm going to do it for these reasons. I wonder if you would die for him. You know, Perpetua could have, could have walked out of prison if all she did was take a, a pinch of incense and drop it into a burning censer and say, Caesar is Lord. Three words, Caesar is Lord, and you get to go home to your infant son. Felicity gave birth to her daughter two days before she was executed, and yet went into the arena to die for Jesus. Would you die for him? I think you probably should beware of that question a little bit, because once you answer it, perhaps in the affirmative, it may make your life look ridiculous. If you were to say, yes, I would die for you, Jesus, but I don't have time to read your word, or I would die for you, Jesus, but I don't have time to pray with you, I would die for you, Jesus, but I don't plan to open my mouth and talk about you to my neighbor or my coworker. I would die for you, Jesus, but I won't forgive sinners or love my enemies or give to the church or, or, or give to support the, the persecuted church. Would you die for Jesus? Maybe you're wondering this morning, in light of all that we've considered, why, why, why do we even have to ask that question? I mean, what's wrong with this world? Well, why is this suffering and persecution all over this world? 
And so this morning, I'd like to spend just a moment with you speaking to you about a theology of suffering. This is the eighth year in a row that, that I've had the, the privilege of being part of an international day of prayer for the persecuted church service. And, and every time I lead in one of these, I have the same fear, is that you'll hear about all this suffering and persecution of, of Christians, and you'll impugn God. You'll say, why, why God, don't you stop this? If you're loving and if you're powerful, why don't you do something about it? And the reason we think those thoughts is that we have been poorly taught from God's Word. That Christianity is not given to make our life easier. It quite often has the opposite effect. And so let's consider this morning the theology of suffering here from 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. First of all, the Bible tells us that we should expect suffering. We should expect suffering. Notice verse 12 when Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter himself would be well acquainted with trial. He eventually would be killed by Emperor Nero. Church tradition tells us he was crucified upside down. Many others were killed by Nero. He's perhaps the most wicked man ever to live upon this world, even probably more wicked than Hitler or Stalin. He had a practice of taking Christians and covering them with pitch and lighting them on fire in order to provide illumination for his evening garden parties. Maybe this is why Peter refers to these fiery trials as he does here in verse 12. And in light of these things, he wants to encourage the church. And he encourages them by saying these words, do not be surprised at these trials. This is not something strange. It's not meaningless. It's not unusual. It's not rare. It's not uncommon. You ought not to be surprised by them. That Christianity has as its hallmark that it is the religion of the persecuted. It is the religion of the suffering. This was promised by Jesus, promised by Paul, promised by James, promised by Luke. This is the experience of Christians throughout the New Testament. In fact, most of the New Testament is written from persecuted Christians to persecuted Christians. This, of course, is experienced by the God whom we love and worship. We worship a God who was, who was mocked and beat and tortured and murdered. In fact, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We gather together and we think about His body, not healthy and strong, but broken. We think about His blood, not coursing through His veins, but spilled out upon this earth to pay for the penalty of our sins. We have a religion that has always encompassed suffering and persecution. Therefore, we ought not to be surprised by it. I think this is why theology is so important. That if, if we know what Jesus endured and know what he's called us to endure, if we know that God even wills, according to verse 19, that sometimes his followers suffer, it is God's will, we will not, knowing this, we will not raise our fists to heaven and, and shake it at God and say, where are you when young mothers are cast to beasts or fathers of two little boys are shot in the chest? Because the word tells us this will happen. In fact, it even tells us here in verse 12 why. Though there are many reasons I think why, here is one of them. According to verse 12, it says this is to test them. These trials are refining Christians. They purify Christians. They strengthen them. They separate them from their idols and sin. They refine their devotion to God. Many have experienced this when persecution and hardship comes. The things which used to occupy them, the silly and trivial things, which used to th they used to think mattered so much, don't really matter as much anymore. 
and you see their heart's devotion, their heart's focused on Christ. It is a powerful witness. In fact, Satyrus, while he spoke to Putin's on his way to face that leopard, won that prison guard to Christ. Putin's would later enter that exact same amphitheater to face the beast and die there as well. It's a powerful witness when we declare, I will give up everything for Jesus. Everything. Wealth, health, leisure, ease, even family. I will give it up for Jesus. This is how Jesus says His church will grow. This is the power of the church. I wonder if this is why the American church is so weak. I wonder when the world stands back and looks at the American church and they ask, what do they love? What are they devoted to? I wonder what they would answer. You look at an Ethiopian Christian or a North Korean Christian or a Saudi Arabia Christian, you may think they're crazy, but there's no doubt what they love. Jesus. They'll give up everything for Him. See, these come to test us. Jerome, the church father, said, The church of Christ has been founded by shedding its own blood, not that of others, by enduring outrage, not inflicting it. Persecutions have made it grow. Martyrdoms have crowned it. So let us not be surprised. And let the church throughout this world not be surprised when it comes upon them. And so what we're going to do, we're going to pause this message for a minute. And we're going to pray for the persecuted church. We're going to pray that those who are in prison right now or fathers that are maybe even dragged away from their families this very moment or church that is perhaps burning somewhere in this this, uh, world of ours, we're going to pray that they would not be shaken by this, that they would not be surprised. So I'm going to ask our brother Craig Sweeney if you will stand and lead us in prayer for our persecuted brothers and sisters. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning before your throne in prayer for our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted and oppressed around the world. We specifically pray for our brothers and sisters in Peru, Colombia, Iraq, India, China, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Sudan, Syria, Saudi Arabia, North Korea, Vietnam, Laos, and Cuba, and many other nations, Father God, who are under constant threat of murder, imprisonment, and torture. Father, it's our prayer this morning that those who are being persecuted and oppressed would not be surprised or shaken by the suffering they endure. Your word tells us in 1 Peter that as believers, we should not be surprised at the fiery ordeals that come to test us or see these ordeals as something strange that is happening to us. Father God, we know that you're present in the most hostile of environments. The psalmist wrote, If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. Therefore, Father, let our brothers and sisters keep their eyes always upon you. Let them see you as their rock, their fortress, and their salvation. We pray that they will never be shaken, Father God. This is our prayer for our brothers and sisters who are suffering. And it is through the powerful and triumphant name of our Lord Jesus that we lift up this prayer this morning. Amen. Amen. Well, not only are we supposed to expect suffering, even more bizarre than that, 
The Bible tells us we are to rejoice in suffering. Note verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. It's interesting here, verse 13, that Peter tells us that when Christians suffer, something unique and and perhaps even wonderful is happening. It says they are sharing Christ's sufferings. I think it's the picture that they're getting lumped in together in the same category of Jesus. The world came against Jesus and, and they come against Christians because Christians are like Jesus. And so when they suffer, they are in some sense sharing the sufferings of Jesus. The creator of this world, the savior of this world, he chose to suffer and die and then calls you and I to carry our cross and to die ourselves and to follow him. And when we do so, we share with what he endured. In fact, this came upon our sister Helen Reservier, a missionary doctor in Zaire for 20 years. She was there in 1964 during a revolution in that country when she and her co-workers were not only arrested, they were tortured for five months. Our sister Helen thought at first God had forsaken her. She said, God, I, I've, I've come from America. I'm living in this country. I've given up wealth. I'm a doctor here for 20 years to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now I'm being tortured. Where are you? And then in, in her prayers, it came upon her, what God was doing in her life. She, she said she had her, at one time an over, overwhelming sense of the presence of God, as if God were saying to her, and I quote her, 20 years ago you asked me for the privilege of being a missionary, the privilege of being identified with me. This is it. Don't you want it? This is what it means. These are not your sufferings. They are mine. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. She began to identify her sufferings with that of Christ. This is what the Scripture teaches us over and over again. Is it not the, uh, Saul on the road to Damascus? Jesus appears to him from heaven and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? In fact, Paul would later in Philippians 3 and verse 8 say, I want to share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And we, we, can, we, we share in His sufferings. And therefore, Peter says, you can rejoice in that. Rejoice in that. This is outrageously otherworldly. It's abnormal. It's radical. We, Christians do not rejoice in the absence of trial. We rejoice because of trial. Through trial. Peter knew this. And John, when they were arrested and beaten by the Sanhedrin, Acts 5 says, they left the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Of course, they're not rejoicing in the trial itself, but they're rejoicing that they get to share in Christ's sufferings. They, they would rather be dishonored with Jesus than honored without Him. And so let us pray this morning for our suffering brothers and sisters who are in the midst of great and unimaginable trial even today that they might find joy in those trials, knowing that in them they share Christ's sufferings. Ashley, will you lead us in prayer, please? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come here to pray for those who are being persecuted at this very moment, who will be persecuted in the future, and who have been in the past. Please help them to rejoice that they're worthy enough to rejoice to suffer with Christ. I know this is so hard to do, but please empower them, Lord, to have that joy. Also, I pray for um, those who've seen their family members, loved ones, 
and friends killed, tortured, and abused. Please let them know that those are in heaven where there's no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. And they are rejoicing with the king whom they worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as Ashley, our sister, prayed that that they would find help in the midst of suffering, which was exactly what Peter says would happen. As we see thirdly, that they receive help during suffering. Notice verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So you want to know how can you endure this? How can you find strength to endure this hardship? How can you even find joy to, in the face of this hardship? Well, Peter says it's because God is going to come and rest upon you in the midst of that. In that moment, when you need God's help, He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. He will not abandon you, but He will come upon you through His Spirit in great power and intimacy and help. In fact, I, I appreciate what John Piper said in commenting on this verse, saying, God will not stand aloof as you die like a skeptical schoolmaster watching you agonize over your final exam. He will come to you in His Spirit, and He will sustain you. The Holy Spirit will help you die. This is exactly what Peter is telling us here. The Spirit of, of glory and of God will rest upon you in the midst of those trials and those hardships. Our sister in the faith, Cory Tamboon, and many of you have written her writings, uh, read her writings often thought about the, what would happen if the Germans ever found out what they were doing and, and they began to threaten her. And she had great fear over that day. Would she be strong enough in face of those Germans when they came looking for those whom they were hiding? She confessed this great worry to her father who said to her, when you are going on to take a journey on a train, do I give you your ticket three weeks early or just as you get on the train? And she answered, as I get on the train. In which her father replied, So God will give you special strength you need to be strong in the face of death just when you need it, not before. I think that's what Peter's promising here. At the hour of greatest need, of greatest trial, God will come upon his believers in the greatest power and the greatest comfort and the greatest intimacy that I didn't even know was possible. When that suffering is great upon the earth, God is not distant. He is a very present help in times of trouble and comes and rests upon his children. I have been so much impressed in my life by our sister Felicity, who I mentioned was the servant girl Perpetua who died in that arena in year 203. She was eight months pregnant when she was arrested and she was not going to be allowed to be martyred with her brothers and sisters because it was illegal in Roman days for a pregnant woman to be thrown to the beasts. And so the fear was this, is that, that all her brothers and sisters would go out to the amphitheater and she would be left behind and she would have to face this great trial alone. In fact, even worse, that maybe she would be grouped with a bunch of common criminals who would be executed for their crimes and she would be lumped together with them rather than with Jesus. And so she was greatly in fear of this. An ancient narrator explains how God worked in her life. He writes... As for Felicity, she too enjoyed the Lord's favor. She had been pregnant when she was arrested and was now in her eighth month. As the day of the spectacle drew near, she was very distressed that her martyrdom would be postponed because of her pregnancy, for it is against the law for women with child to be executed. Thus, she might have to shed her holy blood, innocent blood, afterwards, along with others who were common criminals. 
her comrades in martyrdom were also saddened, for they were afraid that they would have to leave behind so fine a companion to travel alone on the same road to hope. And so two days before the contest, they poured forth a prayer to the Lord in a torrent of common grief. And immediately after their prayer, the birth pains came upon her. She began to labor, noticing the difficulty of her labor and the great pain in birthing this child. The prison guard who was watching her said, You suffer so much now. What will you do when you are tossed to the beasts? Little did you think of that when you refused to sacrifice to Caesar. In which your sister replied, What I am suffering now, I suffer by myself. But then another will be inside me who will suffer for me just as I will be suffering for him. She knew that God would come upon her on that day, that he would carry her through this, that he will, she will never suffer alone. We see this throughout Scripture. Paul says in his trial, his last trial, that he was deserted by everyone and he was alone, yet not alone. For he writes, at my defense, no one took part. All deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and gave me strength. Is it not in the furnace that the Lord comes and, and, and uh, ministers to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Is not when Stephen is being stoned that the Bible says his face shone like that of an angel. And so friends, know that when you suffer for Christ, perhaps mocking or slander here in America or, or being shot in Columbia, know that if you could just pull back the veil, if you could see behind the curtain, you would see the Spirit of God, the glorious Spirit of God resting upon you like you never imagined He could. And so I want to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters this morning. I want to pray that in the midst of their, their suffering this, this very moment, that they would know of God's presence upon them and take great comfort in that. And so, Russ, will you lead us in prayer as we pray that they would know God's Spirit? Thy word I have hidden my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word I have hidden my heart. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Thy Word I have hid in my heart. King David prayed, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. He prayed to Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is my divine presence. The Lord is here. Jesus said to us, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. And Jesus said lastly to us, And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Lord Father, I I thank you that you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are God. You are God here. You are God now. You are God forever. And you are God with us. Father, I can't even begin to imagine what those called to be martyrs for you would go through 
I can't imagine. But the word I have hidden my heart, and I know that you are with us, and you are with us forever. And I trust, because that's what our faith is. Our faith is trust in you, that each of us will know that. That no matter what comes, that you are with us forever. I pray specifically now for our brothers and sisters in the persecuted places of this world. Whether they be persecuted in words only, whether they be persecuted in lying down their lives for you. That you make your presence known to them because they have hidden you in their hearts. Father, it's a dangerous and a difficult world. But we're here for you. We're here because of you. We lift you up in praise. And we thank you. In the name of your son, Jesus, I ask and pray. Amen. Let's lastly concern, uh, consider that we are to trust through suffering. So quickly move through this text. We see... In verse 15, he says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. In other words, the suffering, the persecution he's referring to is, is not suffering because you're a jerk. Right? It's not suffering because you're a criminal. It's suffering because you love Jesus, which is exactly what he says in verse 16. It, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, right, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. When you suffer for God as a Christian, whether it's in high school being mocked or it's around this world being arrested, we're not to be ashamed that we've been lumped with, with God. We're to show them what God is like in the midst of our sufferings, that He's both holy and loving and forgiving and gracious, even in the midst when people come against us. We are, we are to suffer uh, and glorify Him. He then asks, well, what happens to those who actually produce the persecution? Verse 17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, here's the question, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? He asked it again in verse 18. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will be the outcome of the ungodly and the sinner? What will be What will happen? What will happen to them, to those who refuse to bow their knee? You see, the Christians, well, I think what he's saying is that, that, that God is going to take care of them. That justice will be done. That vengeance is God's and God will repay. Therefore, you are free not to. You are free to love and not to, to cry out for justice and mercy and try to have the last words. Though there's times to do that, we can rest in this assurance that God will judge. He is the judge, according to verse 5 of chapter 4, of both the living and the dead. Even death will not spare us from having to give an account to Him. And so he says, listen, just trust the Lord. Entrust yourself to Him. Be like Jesus in this way. Look, look in chapter 2 and verse 23. The Bible says of Jesus, when He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten. Listen, what did Jesus do? But continued, here it is, entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He's just going to entrust Himself to God. That God will take care of this. I don't need to worry about it. I'm just giving myself to God. And, let, let, and I know that God will right every wrong. I, I, I'm afraid I will never understand when our, uh, when our, our Muslim friends um, get so bent out of shape when one of their sacred books is, 
is destroyed or, or, or their prophet has a cartoon drawn about them. I mean, you could draw cartoons of Jesus all you want and you, you could throw away as many Bibles as you want. You're not going to find Christians burning down buildings and riding in the streets. Because our God is big enough to take care of himself. He doesn't need you to stick up for him. He, he will judge. We rather are called to love and to forgive and extend grace and mercy as we have received. And as we do, as we are suffered because of this, you know, verse 19, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will do what? Entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Entrust ourselves to God. To hand ourselves over. This is not the common word for faith, this word entrust. is actually a financial term. It's a banking term. It means to take something of value and give it to someone else for safekeeping. And he's saying you take your life, your soul, and give it to God for safekeeping. It's the very same phrase that our Lord said when he hung upon the cross. Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. As he died for you and for me and all who would bow their knee to King Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Please know that Jesus has died for sinners. We recognize that we are sinners. The reason why we love our enemies and extend grace to sinners is because we were once God's enemy and we receive grace. And he will give you grace if you will bow your knee to King Jesus who has been crucified and rose from the dead. He will invite you into his kingdom, forgive all your sins, cover you with his righteousness, and bring you into his family forevermore. If you will bow your knee to Jesus, give him your life and trust your soul to him. And for all of us, we need to continue daily, hand ourselves over to the Lord, give all of ourselves to God in the midst of a chaotic and difficult world. And so we're going to end our time this morning as we have one last prayer for the persecuted church. We ask that God would help them to hand over all of them into God's faithful care. Will you pray with me? Father, please, will you not work amongst our brothers and sisters? Will you not, please, even now, as many suffer this very moment, will you not know the churches around this world, will you let them know that churches around this world are praying for them and calling out for them? And will you not, Father, through your great power in their life, just let them hand everything over to you? That they need not worry about anything knowing that their God is a faithful creator and they would continue to do good in the midst of great hardship. Help them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we